We're going to be in 2 Samuel. We're staying in 2 Samuel. We're in part 7 of our Fearless series. Uh, We've been in this series for several weeks. It's called Fearless. And uh, when the battle is bigger than you. And we're going to we're going to spend some time today uh, exploring the battle of temptation that David faced in his life. And um, he failed miserably, at least in the, in the episode that we're reading today. Um, but I think there's something that God can teach us uh, uh, about ourselves from this passage. So I'm going to read you a long passage of scripture. But the good thing is it's incredibly compelling. It's a very compelling. I try to cut out the parts where I think I'm going to lose you. I just couldn't cut out any parts today. I mean, it's just, it's just strong. All right. So it's second Samuel uh, chapter 11. So follow along. You can follow on the screen or on your Bible app or in your Bible, however you follow. It says this in the spring at the time when Kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the King's men. And the whole Israelite army. But David, it says, remained in Jerusalem. Uh, One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab. Joab was his general. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. Now remember, Uriah is her husband. When Uriah came to him, David had the most awkward conversation with anyone in the Bible. David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers are doing, how's the war going. In other words, he's trying to make small talk with the guy whose wife he has slept with. Uh, How's everything going? Then David said to Uriah, uh, Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Now, sometimes the Bible is literal. Sometimes the Bible is metaphorical. Does anybody know? What I'm saying today, this is a euphemism, not for washing your feet, but for spending time in intimate relationship with your wife. We good here? Adults, everybody's tracking so far. So do you understand what David's doing, right? He's trying to cover his tracks. Have you ever noticed that immorality is incremental? Like unless you stop at a certain point and repent and turn around, you have to keep adding on layers and layers and layers of sin to cover for the sin that you already committed. Anybody know what I'm talking So he's brought Uriah back from the battle to, so that Uriah can sleep with his own wife so that David won't look like he slept with his wife so that she'll get pregnant and everybody will go, oh, it was normal, right? That was when Uriah came home and, 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 and washed his feet. So, um, so he says, go home and, uh, and, and wash your feet. So... Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all of his master's servants, and he did not go down to his house. In other words, he had the opportunity, but he said, no, I'm I'm not going to do that. Uh, David was told, Uriah didn't go home. So David asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? I thought I sent you home. I sent gifts. I was trying to make things nice for you. You didn't even go home. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house 
to eat and drink and make love to my wife. As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Uriah is the real deal, okay? Uriah is like loyal. Uriah is a, a, a warrior. He's like a real warrior. He's like, I'm not going to go home, eat and drink with my wife, enjoy myself. When my brothers in arms are out there on the battlefield, I just can't do it. He sleeps on the mat in front of the palace with the servants. Then David said to him, oh, he said, man, I got to figure out another way. So stay here, Uriah, for one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. So this is the second shot. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get you all liquored up. Then I'm going to send you to your wife. Hopefully you'll sleep with her, or you won't remember that you didn't sleep with her, and then everything will be fine when, when it turns out that she's pregnant, okay? So he gets him drunk, but in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master servants, and he did not go home, all right? This isn't working. David's attempts at covering his sin are failing. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, who is the the general in the army, and sent the letter with Uriah. Interesting detail. If I had two hours, I could totally preach this sermon the right way. I'm going to preach an an abbreviated. But anyway, he sends the letter and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. He gave that letter to Uriah. Can you imagine? This is the letter I want you to take to Joab. It says, kill me. This is your own death warrant. And he trusts, he trusts Uriah so much that he gives him the letter that says to kill him. So while, Joab, uh, so while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. So David is thinking, okay, everything is cool now, right? I got rid of Uriah, so he's not going to know what happened. Joab sent David, the general sent David a full account of the battle. I'm going to skip a few lines here. It's a fascinating description of what Joab tells the messenger. Basically, Joab tells the messenger, hey, go tell him that we lost the battle. Tell him that we lost a lot of guys. And then when he gets really flared up and angry and, is, and, he, and he gets all ticked off, then tell him, oh yeah, and by the way, Uriah the Hittite died. And that'll make him feel real calm. And, and the messenger says, okay, I'll just, whatever, whatever you want me to tell him. So uh, the, the, the messenger set out And when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city of the gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's king's men died. In other words, we lost. And then I love how the servant just immediately adds on. Moreover, uh, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. So he just doesn't want David to get mad at him. He says, you know, do you know when when you're compromised, you're compromisable? Like when you, when, you, when, you have, when you have sinned and you're trying to cover it, you put yourself in a more vulnerable position than you would have if you would have just stopped sinning and admitted and confessed what you did and repented. Amen? That's my whole sermon. I'm just going to leave after that. All right. Here we go. Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab. I'm going to send word back. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. In other words, you know, it is what it is. I don't know what you're going to do. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife, and she bore him a son. But the thing David had done, notice that, the thing David had done displeased the Lord. 
I want to preach for just a few moments today on the subject, lead me not into temptation. I can find it on my own. Amen. Anybody? All right, let's pray together. Father, we come before you today and we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord God, that this word would just seep in our heart. It would come all the way into our heart. It, it, would, it would reveal the things in our heart that need to be rooted out. It would give us the strength and the encouragement by the power of your spirit to turn away from the things that are bringing us destruction and desolation and death and would take us, God, into the light of your life, into the joy of your salvation. I pray for each and every one of us today that we would be transformed by your word to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said amen. Amen. So in 2013, uh, the Barna Research Group did a study. They do these studies. They take these very extensive polls. And the question that they wanted to know from people are, hey, what are your top temptations? What are the things that tempt you the most? What are the things that you struggle with? What, what are your temptations? And it's very interesting what they, what they found out. Now, before I tell you what they found out, let me first say this. All of these numbers are based on people's self-reporting. Okay. What that means is, at least in my mind, these numbers are going to be a little lower than what they actually are, because I don't know if you noticed this, but people tend to sort of understate their sin. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. So, so they asked them, what, what, are, what are your biggest temptations? And they found that when they did the research this year, as opposed to 10 years earlier, they found some new uh, temptations. A couple things that hadn't been on the earlier study, but that, but that were on this one, is that people said, I spend too much time on media. So that's your phone, your Facebook, whatever. I spend too much time on that. 44% of us say, yeah, that's a, that's a problem. 44% of us say, I spend too much time. Uh, this was a new one. 11% of people say, sometimes I just go off. I just go off on text, or I just go off on email, and then I... I wish I hadn't, but I'm tempted to do it, and it's just something that I do, okay? So those were a couple new ones that, that, that sort of arose because of technology, all right? Some of the good old-fashioned temptations are um, 55% of people said, I eat too much. I, I'm tempted to eat too much. I overeat. Um, 44% said, I spend too much money. I'm not, I'm not a good steward with what God has given me, and I, I just blow, blow our family's money, blow our, you know, my money, whatever. Um, Gossiping is 26%. People saying, I talk, I'm tempted to talk behind people's back. I, I'm like, I find it interesting and fun to, to say things about people when they're not there to hear me. Uh, so 26% of people admitted to that. Feeling jealous, 24% of people said, this is a temptation for me. Viewing pornography, 18%. I will say this on that. You're, you're getting men and women, old and young here. When you separate out the data... When you look at men versus women, obviously the number is higher because men are more tempted by pornography. And when you also separate the, the data, older and younger, you find that younger men, millennials, are most tempted uh, for, for uh, pornography. Lying or cheating, uh, 12%, which tells me also that at least 12% of people on this study probably answered some of these other questions not correctly. Okay? All right. It's what I'm, I'm just doing the numbers here. I'm just a math cruncher here, okay? Abusing alcohol or drugs, about 11% of people say this is a temptation. Doing something sexually inappropriate with someone, about 9% of people say this is a temptation, all right? Now, they also found that there were some temptations that were specifically Western, that when they went to other countries and, 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 and asked people about these other temptations, these numbers didn't come up. Particularly, Western temptations were procrastinating. So 60% of us say, man, I know I should do this now, but I'm going to wait until tomorrow. We're tempted by that. 
60% of us are tempted to worry. We're tempted to worry about things that we don't have control over and we get anxious about them. And then about 41% of people said, I am tempted to just sort of be lazy and just binge watch uh, Netflix and just chill out and not do the things that I'm supposed to do, right? Now, my assumption today is that everybody here and everybody at Shaw and everybody is stepping into the light and everybody online, all of us can find ourselves somewhere in the data. Are you guys with me? We can find ourselves somewhere on that scale. We can find ourselves somewhere in one of those temptations. And I don't know if you noticed this, but it seems to me that the more egregious temptations, fewer people were willing to admit that they were tempted by them. I don't know if you noticed, the numbers kind of started going down, 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 right? We're all, we all face temptation from time to time. And the other thing that's, that's, that's particularly uh, stressful or, or, or disconcerting, let's say, about, about temptation is a lot of times we are tempted and then we succumb to temptation. And then when we look back at it, we think to ourselves, why did I do that? Right? Like we don't actually, we think, well, man, I, I don't want to do that. I didn't want to do that. And I did it. Or I wanted to do that and I didn't do it. Why do I do what I hate and hate what I do sometimes? Remember, Paul says that. Why do I do the things that I say I don't want to do, and then I, I, I don't do the things that I say I want to do? Why do I do that, right? So uh, the Barnett Group actually asked that question to um, the people that they pulled. And what was fascinating is 50% of the people said, uh, I don't really know. Why, why do I give in to temptation? I don't know. I just do it. Like, I don't want to do it. I don't mean to do it. I can't really put my finger on it. I don't know why I do what I do, but I do it. My mom was a, she used to be the director of a preschool and they uh, sent um, a kid to her office one time and this kid had punched another kid at the preschool. So my mom asked that question that every parent asks, why did you do that? You know, did you, did your parent ever ask that? Why did you do that? And, and this kid, uh, he, he, he's, he's sitting there and, and my mom says, why did you punch the other kid? And this kid closes his eyes and he's concentrating and he goes, because... It's my birthday, and I forgot to bring you a cupcake, <laughs> right? And so now at my house, whenever somebody does something they're not supposed to do, we all, that's our mantra, because it's my birthday, and I forgot to bring you a cupcake. In other words, I don't know why I did it. I'm just going to make something up, because I don't know why I do what I do. Sometimes I just do things, and I wish I didn't, but I did it. So if you ask David, David, why'd you do this, man? Why did you do something that just kept escalating and bringing so much destruction and despair into other people's life and into your life? And, it, and it, we're not even covering some of the stuff that happens. We'll get into that next week. But it's just, it's just, he just invites this devastation and destruction into his life. Why'd you do it, David? Right? A lot of times we don't know. So what I want to do today is I want to take this textbook case of temptation and sin. And I want to offer us uh, uh, two things about why we succumb to temptation and how we avoid temptation. And really, it comes down to two things. Number one, awareness of the conditions that are most likely to be around us when we succumb to temptation. What are the conditions that we find ourselves in that are, that are the kinds of conditions that uh, allow us or, or encourage us to succumb to temptation? 
What are those conditions? What are those situations? All right. And then what are the actions that we can take to avoid those temptations so that you and I are not just standing around going, I don't know. I just sinned and I don't know why I sinned. Well, what are you going to do? I sinned. I can't. I don't know why. Right. I want to use this case because if you look at this, if you look at this text carefully, and there's just so much to preach from this text. I can't preach it all, but I am going to preach these two points because what I think is you can see some dynamics at work in David's life and in David's heart and in, his, in the situation that he's in that led him to sin in this very, very egregious way. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to name the four conditions that I'm drawing out of this text. And I gave you a, 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 an acronym for it. The acronym is FAIL, F-A-I-L. If you would just take the time now to turn somebody, turn to somebody in your row that's more organized than you, get a pen from them and write this down, write these things down, then you will, you will, uh, you will have this mnemonic device that will help you stay out of sinful situations. Does that sound all right, somebody? All right, this is going to be helpful. I'm going to do straight pastoral teaching today, if that's okay. If you're a guest here, welcome. I didn't mean for this to coincide with Valentine's Day weekend. It just did. I apologize in advance and so forth. So fail. When are we most likely to fail? We fail when we are fatigued. Okay. This is number one. We fail when we're tired. We fail when our soul is depleted and we're exhausted. Um, we, I used to drive from LA to Phoenix and back and forth because my family was in Phoenix and I'd make that drive. And one time I was making that drive. It was late at night. I was trying to push through, make the drive. And suddenly the, a, a police car is behind me. The lights are going on. I pull over to the side of the road. Officer comes up and he, and, and he goes, man, are you, uh, are you like, are you, are you falling asleep at the wheel? And I'm like, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know. I'm tired. But he's like, I'm following you. He's like, you're driving the speed limit, but every once in a while you just veer off to the side of the road and then you jerk back on. He's like, man, I think you're falling asleep. You need to pull over because you're going to crash and you're going to hurt yourself and you're going to hurt somebody else. You need to pull over and you need to, you need to sleep somewhere, right? Just like our, when our body is tired, we're likely to crash and harm somebody. When our soul is tired, we are likely to crash and harm ourselves and somebody else. Anybody ever been soul tired? You know what I mean? Like it's your soul is tired, not just physically tired. Your soul is tired. You're feeling depleted. Your energy is gone. You are fatigued. When we're fatigued, our guard goes down and we are more likely to make dumb choices and harm ourselves and harm other people because we are tired. If you look at the story of David and you and you track back a little bit, you get a hint about his own personal emotional, mental, and soul condition at the beginning of this story. What's so fascinating at the beginning of the story in the very first line, it says in the spring at the times when kings go off to war. So, you know, this is when they go. David sent Joab, his general, and, and he sent out uh, the king's men and the whole Israelite army. But David remained in Jerusalem. Nowhere else in First and Second Samuel do we see David sending the army off to fight on their own. Every other time when there's a battle to be fought, David's like, let's go fight the battle. Let's go after it. I'm going to lead the men. We're going to go fight. We're going to attack. We're going to win. Right? This is the first time that he goes, you know what? You guys go. Right? You guys go. He's been running from Saul. He's been fighting. He's been uh, consolidating kingdoms. He's been doing all this. And he allowed his soul to get so fatigued that when it was time to show up for the battle, when it was time to focus on something that God had for him to pursue, he got too tired and he backed away. When we are tired, we're temptable. Come on, somebody, help me out. When we get tired, when our soul gets fatigued, when we don't have rest in our soul, then we are 
open to temptation. Our soul becomes open to temptation. We start to go, oh, maybe I should, you know, whatever it is, whatever it is that you shouldn't do, your guard goes down and you start to move into that. And you start to go, man, I'm just getting tired. I'm just getting tired. We can actually get a snapshot into David's heart, soul, mind from one of the Psalms that he wrote. It's Psalm 69. It's beautiful. And it just tells you where he's at. He says, the waters have come up to my neck. I'm overwhelmed, he's saying. I sink in deep mire where there's no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I'm just, I'm flooded right now. I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail. I'm tired. I'm weak. I'm weary. See, the thing is, when you get tired, when you not, when the only, the only law of God, the only commandment that people don't think we have to follow is the Sabbath. You ever notice that? They're like, okay, don't cheat, don't steal, don't lie, don't, you know, and then Sabbath, meh, you know, you've got to have Sabbath. You've got to take time for your soul to rest. You've got to take time where you are not, you're not, you're, you're, you're not receptive to anybody trying to reach you. Any, anybody that's depleting you. You need to have time where you're going, okay, I'm just going to rest right now. Because if you don't, your soul will get exhausted. And can I just tell you just a little secret life hack? Scrolling on your phone is not restful. Okay? It's not restful. In fact, uh, the makers of the, of the smartphones have, have, have uh, actually implemented a mechanism on the phone that helps you if you are somebody who's addicted to phone and you're spending all your time on the phone, I'm going to show it to you. You can zoom in on this. It's really amazing because it, it, you, there's a button you can push on the side. If you push that button and then this thing comes up, you just go like this. And then it's, it's amazing because it's incredible how it works. You know what I mean? It's just, it's so restful. I'm so at peace right now. I'm so relaxed. It, you've got to have time, somebody. You've got to spend time with people that bring you fullness and joy and life and love and you've got to get away and shut down the things that are depleting you and draining you and sucking the life out of you because if you don't you will crash you will crash so we fail when we're fatigued we fail when we're angry I don't know if you've ever noticed that but very rarely do you get really mad and you go you know what I'm just gonna I'm so mad I'm just gonna bless someone with the blessings of the Lord right now I'm just going to do something so kind and loving and generous. That's just what I feel like doing. I'm so mad. I'm just going to. That doesn't happen, right? What happens is when we get mad, we do dumb things. We do stupid things when we get mad. In, in, in boxing and MMA and fighters, whenever they're talking about fighting, they say, don't fight mad. Wrestlers, don't fight mad. Because if you fight mad, then you make dumb mistakes. You overreach. You do things that you shouldn't do in the heat of it. You do things that you ought not to do because you're mad. And then you do them, and then you get knocked out. Okay, so don't fight mad. The thing, the best thing to do when you're really mad is nothing. It's the best thing. Don't do anything. For me, I'm just going to be real with you. If I get mad, I can't get unmad by myself. I'm an extrovert. I need help. I need other people to help me get unmad. So when I get mad, uh, if I do anything, I'm, I always have to repent for it. I always have to apologize for anything that I do when I'm mad, except if I reach out to somebody that I love and that I trust and that loves me, and I say, and I, and I talk, and I, and I try to ha have them help me de-escalate. 
okay? It's usually my wife. If I get really mad, I'll call my wife and I'll go, babe, I'm just, I'm really upset about something. I just need to vent for a minute. She's going to talk. I might need you to pray for me, right? I might need you to, you know, counsel me and advise me unless I'm mad at her. Then I got to call somebody else and have the same conversation. But I got to, yeah, don't call her when I'm mad at her. That does not, that is, do not text your husband, wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, friend when you're mad. Can I just tell you that? Categorically, do not text when you're angry. Don't text when you're angry. If you take nothing else from today, don't text when you're angry. Okay, so, so, but you've got to find somebody that can help bring you, calm you down. Because if you do, if you act in anger, you will do very dumb things. You will be tempted to do bad things that will harm you and hurt you, okay? Now, what we don't see in this story, but if you've got to read the chapters beforehand, David, right before this happened, was furious, he was livid. I don't know if you remember last week, but he and his wife, Michael, got into a very big fight. I don't know if you remember that. But she was very angry at him. He was very angry at her. He let the sun go down on his wrath. He did not resolve the problem that he had with his own relationship. He got into it with her. And then in chapter 10, we're in chapter 11 now, in chapter 10, right before he got up wandering around on the roof, this is what happened. He sent a delegate, a delegation of his men to express sympathy to Hanan, who Hanan was an Ammonite king that lived nearby whose father had died. And his father had been very kind to David. And so David sent a delegation of sympathy to Hanan concerning his father. When David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, it says that Hanan, the the new king, seized David's envoys, shaved off half of each man's beard, cut off their garments at the buttocks, and sent them away. In other words, this Ammonite king says, I don't want your sympathy. I don't want your extension of kindness. You know what? I'm going to shave off the the beards of your men. I'm going to cut their clothes. I'm going to shame them, and I'm going to send them away. And he completely disrespected David and undercut his kind gesture. And I don't know if you know this about David, but David's ego was kind of like many of our egos. When somebody disrespects you or dishonors you or degrades you in some way, it kind of gets to you. You know what I mean? Anybody? Nobody? Somebody, right? It gets to you when somebody, and so this happened the night, this happened right before David is up on his roof. In my mind, as I'm reading this, I'm seeing David walking around on his roof, seething about how do I get back against, uh, how do I get back against the Ammonites? And my wife is disrespecting me, and nobody's, right? He's mad. He's angry. He's put himself in a situation where he's lowered his guard because he's angry. He's put himself in a condition where he's likely to fall prey to temptation, right? This is what happens. When we get emotionally worked up, we're we're likely to fail somebody. We're likely to fall. In fact, the scripture says this. It says, be angry and just don't do anything because you're going to sin. Be angry. You're going to get angry, but I love how the scripture just ties it together. Be angry and sin not. In other words, the reason it says that is not because we tend to not sin when we're angry. The reason it says, says that is because we do tend to sin when we're angry. So it says, when you're angry, don't sin, right? Be angry and sin not. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. If you allow this to, to fester and boil, it's going to come out in bad ways. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. In other words, when you are angry and you're allowing yourself to stay angry and you're still in that zone, temptation comes, the enemy of your soul comes, and you are likely to bomb. Do not be, do not stay angry. Do not, sin, do not stay in a state of anger. Get some people around you that can advise you and counsel you when you're angry. Are you tracking with me today? I hope this is helpful to somebody. We fail when we're angry. We fail when we're isolated. 
That was the problem in David's situation is that he had sent off all the men to battle that he could have talked to, that he had respect from, that he respected. He was completely isolated. So he didn't have somebody to call and say, man, I need to vent for a minute. Everybody was gone. Everybody was at the battle. David is on the rooftop by himself wandering around trying to figure out how to make himself feel better because he's fatigued and he's angry and he's isolated. Now, here's what, I will, here's what I will say. This is just an interesting observation. One observation that I just can make today is that as we are all sitting here together and at Shaw and in different locations, when we're all here together, my assumption is that about 99% of us are not actively sinning right now at this moment. We're just not sinning right now, unless you're envying the hairdo of the person in front of you or something like that, something very subtle, something very low. But most of us are not sitting. Why? Because we're in community right now. We're pursuing the things of God. We're pursuing uh, the word of God. We're coming together to worship. We're around other people that are also pursuing that. When we leave here and we get isolated, that's when we're likely to sin. When we are alone, we don't have people in our life that can help us, that we can open up to and talk to and think it through and pray it through together. That, this is why we have life groups, by the way. P.S. This is why we do this. So that when you leave here, you haven't left the, the, the community of God. You're still in connection with other people. We have a men's life group. We have, we have 60 some life groups. We have a men's one meets every Wednesday morning. And it's a group of 50 guys. And we all get together. We eat breakfast together. We sit around a table. We talk about life. We talk about the word of God. We have each other on text message. We hang out together. We spend because we don't want to be isolated. Are you with me this morning? You know, it's, it's when, you're, when you're isolated, man, you just don't have an opportunity. In fact, I'm going to give you this scripture. There's a scripture in 1 Peter. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I love the metaphor of the lion because if any of you know anything about how a pride of lions hunt, their single strategy is to isolate one member of the prey from whatever herd that prey is in. They're going after an antelope. All they got to do is get one antelope out of the herd. They just got to get one. They got to isolate one. Then they attack. That's why this metaphor is so beautiful because, because God is saying in this scripture, he's saying, don't get off alone. Don't get off alone because the lion pride is ready to attack. I mean, you, you're, there's temptations coming at you, but if you get alone, you're, you're, you're doomed. If you stay in community, if you stay around other people who, who can, can build you up, fellowship and friendship and love and that kind of thing, you're less likely to fail. All right? These are the conditions. All right? And then I'm going to give you the very last one. We are likely to fail when we're in a state of longing. And I want to press in on this for just a moment, a state of longing. If you look at David's life, you see a man who has a hungry soul. He has a hungry soul. He's longing for things that he's trying to fill with things other than God. Let, let, me, let me read one line to you. I wrote this down, so I want to get it right. Every sin is the attempt to satisfy a good longing with the wrong thing. You see, what he's trying to do is he's trying to fill his heart with something. The, the kinds of things that we all want. Love, affection, uh, a sense of worth, a sense of value, all the beautiful things that we all want. But when you try to fill the thing with something that can't satisfy the thing, actually what happens is you actually become hungrier. It's like if you try to drink, if you try to quench your thirst by drinking salt water, if you try to drink salt water to quench your thirst, what happens is you get thirstier and thirstier and thirstier the more salt water you drink. And you become more and more and more dehydrated the more you drink it until finally you are completely de dehydrated. You die longing for something more to drink. 
some more salt water to drink. When we, when we try to fill the longing the, in our life with anything but God, we get hungrier and, and hungrier and hungrier. The reason I know this about David is because David, it wasn't like David did not have a sexual partner and he needed a sexual partner. He had seven, he had seven wives, I believe at this point already, and a harem full of concubines. In other words, we, we are seeing a picture of a man who kept trying to fill his life with something and was unsatisfied. And the more he tried to fill it, the hungrier he got to the point where he's taking Uriah the Hittite's wife. In fact, let me read you. I love the messenger that, that I love the way the messenger reported on who Bathsheba was. The me, you, you just get this messenger. The messenger had, had seen David run this play before, right? So he comes to David. He goes, hey, Bathsheba is the daughter of Eliam, David. Eliam. Eliam is in David's 37 group of, of mighty men, one of his closest fighters, one of his closest warriors. Eliam was one of David's closest confidants, in the, one of, one, the guy that stood b- beside him and fought battles. 37 guys. This is a close group of guys. He's the daughter of Eliam. This is the wife of Uriah. Uriah was another mighty man. Another, another man that was one of David's mighty men, one of the, one of the you know, green berets of David's army that David fought. In fact, Uriah and David fought together before David even became king. These guys, went, these guys had history. These guys had, they went way back, right? And David is, and, and it doesn't say this here, but actually David's, David also knew Bathsheba's grandfather. Her grandfather was one of his chief counselors. So this messenger is going, don't do this, man. This She's off limits, David. He's, this, the messenger has seen David's hunger before. He's seen it play out before. And he's going, man, come on, man. Don't do this. This is, this is leave her alone. Don't do it, right? And I want to say this really quickly. A lot of people get this kind of sideways. Bathsheba was not the problem in this situation. If I can just be real with you for a minute. Bathsheba wasn't the problem. Bathsheba's body wasn't the problem. David's heart was the problem. And, and the reason I say that is very important because sometimes the commentaries and some sermons can get a little off on this. Everywhere we read in this text, the only person that's condemned for any of the activities that occurred is David. At the very end, remember when I was reading the passage, it said, and the Lord was displeased with what David did. Some people will say, well, Bathsheba shouldn't have been out on the roof bathing and so forth. She wasn't on the roof bathing. It doesn't say she was on the roof. It says David was on the roof. His roof was higher than everybody else's roofs. And if you read Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, it says, he says that Bathsheba was in her house, meaning implying that David must have seen her through a window. And, and the only place where she could have possibly been exposed would have been from somebody up above and she would not have in any way expected David to be peering over the side of his roof, looking in her window while she's bathing, okay? Because, I'll tell you why, because it's springtime when kings go off to war, and her husband is off at war, and her dad is off at war, and the assumption is the king is off at war. She's, not, she's done nothing to put herself in this situation. You look at every piece of it when, when Nathan the prophet comes, and we're going to get into that next week. He, he describes Bathsheba as a lamb that is being crushed by a, a ravenous uh, master. So Bathsheba is not the problem. Bathsheba, Bathsheba was, was, had no choice in this situation. The scripture says that David went and got her. Okay, and the reason I, I stress this is because if you want to overcome your sin, you've got to own your sin. Come on, somebody. You, you can't, if you give yourself an out, like, well, sure, I was at fault, but anytime you say I was at fault, but, then you have not repented. 
You're, you're, what you've done is you've opened up a nice little crevice where you to go straight through and go sin again. If somebody comes to me and they confess their sin and it ends with a but, like, but I, you know, I know, man, you're not there. You're going to go right back at it, right? But, but David is trying to fill this longing and he's doing it, and he's doing it in a way that literally leads, at the, at the very least, it's adultery. But it's more than adultery because she has no consent. She has no ability to consent. She can't say yes or no because there was a law against doing what he was doing. But he was also the juror and he was also the police officer and he was also the the judge. He was everything. She had nowhere to go. So this is a guy who like his longing is so deep trying to fill his life with something that he's willing to go further and further and further. At the beginning of this sermon, and I'm going to close in just a minute, I promise. But I, I I want this to be helpful to you. At the beginning of this sermon, I said... We have to be able to, to be aware. There's got to be an awareness of the conditions. And then I also said there are some actions. So what I'm going to do in the next T minus three minutes, I'm going to give you some actions, some action items that you and I can take so that we avoid those conditions where we are most likely to sin. And they all correspond with the kinds of conditions that we are most likely to sin in, okay? The first one is this, seek Sabbath. And I cannot overstress this. Please find a time in your life to stop working. The world will spin without you. You are not Messiah. Everything, you know what, man? The the kingdom of God was fine before I was born. The kingdom of God will be just fine long after I'm gone. God doesn't need me. I need him, right? So, God doesn't need us. We, we need him. And he, and he built us not as machines, but as creatures that need rest. So take, please do this. Take some time and rest. Turn it off. Turn off the phone. Turn off the things that are, right? Just find some time to rest. The second one is this, is accept counsel. First one is for fatigue. This is for when you're angry and you're upset. To reach out to someone. When we started the church, when we planted the church in 2011, I was working as a lawyer. I was working full, full-time as a lawyer. And then we were planting the church. And life was crazy, man. It was busy. And it was going nuts. And I remember turning to my wife and saying, hey, I'm fine. But my emotions are kind of a little bit wobbly right now. I'm going to go talk to a counselor. Not because I've done anything wrong, but because I want to avoid doing something wrong. I want to talk to somebody that I can trust and that can spend some time with me so I can just make sure that I don't get off track. I don't want to lose focus. So I went and spoke to a guy, a friend of mine who's a counselor, and I just sat down with him. I go, man, there's nothing really wrong. I just want to make sure nothing goes wrong, right? Take time when you're, when you're extremely emotional and you've got anger, you got whatever it is, you got to express that. Spend some time with somebody who can help guide you so you don't crash into somebody else, all right? Number three is find friendship. Number three is find friendship. Go ahead and put that up. Find friendship. Get into a life group, all right? This is, this is where... You know, this is going to where you, where when you're isolated, this is where you're going to get out of isolation. You cannot be in isolation. If you're in isolation, you're going to end up in my office pretty soon going, man, I don't know what happened. I'm going to go, did you have anybody around you to talk, right? Can I just say this too? We're going to get into next week. It's going to be awesome. All right. We're going to get into grace and how God redeems us and restores us. But this is to help us avoid landing in in sin, right? But I don't want this to be condemning. I want to help us. I want this to be encouraging. And the last one is this, experience God. All of the longings that you have in your life, all of them, every longing, every desire can be filled by God. 
I, I mean that. I really mean that. If you're trying to find your sense of self-worth and, and, and your sense of value in anything but God, you're going to be so hungry and you're going to keep eating things that uh, actually destroy you. But if you will turn and say, God, I, I need you and I'm just going to turn to you. And I'm going to come after you. I'm going to pursue you. Everything we do here at One Family Church is to help you experience God. That's why our mission, bring people and God together in love. We want you to experience, I want you to experience God like richly. Because when David did that, his life was beautiful. It's when he got off and started trying to fill his life, fill his hunger, fill his longing with anything else, that he got really messed up. And he destroyed people and he destroyed himself. One of the Psalms, and this is, I'm going to end this. This is when we get the beautiful picture of David. He says, Psalm 16, he said, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You know what that means? It means all of the nourishment that I need, I find in you. All of the hunger in my soul, I am satisfied in you. You are my portion, you're my meal, and you're my cup. You're the bread of life. And you are the well that never runs dry. You are the manna from heaven. And you are the river of the spirit that flows from my belt. I, I, I'm overflowing with the love that you have given me by the power of your spirit. You are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. I'm safe in you. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. You've staked out the boundary lines for my life. And they're good. And they're right. And they're for me. They're to make my life flourish, not to make me feel bad and not to keep me confined. They're there to make me flourish so that I don't keep going down destructive paths. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I, I, this is from you. Like, this is delightful. God does not, he's not trying to hem you in so that you feel all tied up and unhappy. He, it's delightful. It's a delightful inheritance that he has for you. But the thing is, we keep trying, and I'm going to end it here, I promise. We keep trying to fix our life without filling our life. And as long as we're trying to fix ourselves without being filled, then we keep filling ourselves with stuff that doesn't fix us. It fractures us. It breaks us open further. It wounds us. It harms us. And he's saying, look, fill your life with me. Let me be your cup. Let me be your portion. Let me be your love. Let me be your strength. Let me be your all. I'm going to pray for you. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We ask, Lord God, that your spirit would give us the strength to take in what you have given us through your word today. And we pray, Lord, that we would be filled, strengthened, fortified by you, that we would be filled with your love and your mercy and your grace. I pray for those who are struggling with temptation or about to face it, or maybe they've come through it and, they, and, and they're on the, the, the victorious side of it. Or maybe they went into it and they bombed. God, I pray for your grace, for the long arm of your mercy and your, and your peace in our life. I pray that you would transform us. I pray that those of us uh, who, who have not opened our hearts to receive you would open our hearts and allow you to flood in and take us over. And be everything, be our, be our portion, be our cup. God, we give you all praise. We give you all the honor. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.